all of us, we're all not positional enough. Because when you limp, you let the blinds realize their equity. You'd rather be the one that put in the last action as you head into the flop. (laughs) And we learned things like ace-queen offsuit wasn't profitable under the gun for any of us. As your stack size decreases, or increases, um, specific hands go up or down in value. If you're going to get two cold callers behind you, queen-jack offsuited is really hard to play well out of position. Unless your opponents are just absolutely terrible and there are three people at the game who are drunk and trying to fire off money, and even then you might not make ace-jack offsuit profitable. Well, greetings, everybody, and welcome once again to the Rec Poker Podcast, sponsored by Running Aces Casino and Racetrack. I'm your host, Steve Fredland. Also, a quick thanks to Next Level Poker, who is our official tour. The Poker is Fun Tour and PokerCoaching.com. And I'm excited to announce here on the Rec Poker Podcast that our official tour, Next Level Poker, is announcing their first official tour stop is going to be at Diamond Joe Worth Casino in Northwoods, Iowa. Rec Poker is super excited to be partnered with Next Level, and we are excited to join them for this event in Iowa. Now, there's a lot of events leading up to it, and all the details are going to be on nextlevel.poker, but for sure mark your calendar for that weekend of November 24th through 26th at Diamond Joe Worth Casino in Northwoods, Iowa. And again, a lot of cool stuff leading up to that that week and even prior. So stay tuned for details, but uh, we're super excited to be on the front edge of this new tour, and I think they're going to be doing great things. Quick reminder for those of you who are in Minnesota that we have two All In For Africa events coming up. Our standard tournament, All In For Africa 7, will be held October 28th at 10.30 in the morning at Running Aces. We already have about 50 bounties scheduled, and we know that the final table is going to be broadcast live by Next Level Poker. So check that out. The flyer is out there, so you can see who your targets are. You can get details at runaces.com or find All In For Africa on Facebook or Twitter. And then we've added a second event just like five days later, Thursday night, November 2nd, 6 p.m. at Running Aces. We're calling this the Hawaiian Dream Winner Take Most Tournament. The buy-in is $120 plus a $20 add-on. The prize pool is fixed and guaranteed. We are going to pay the top five places this. First place is going to get a Hawaiian trip for two, valued at about $9,500. It's first-class flights from Minneapolis to Hawaii, you're going to spend seven days, six nights at the Four Seasons Resort on Maui. You get $100 per day resort credit. You get some ground transportation covered. It's a fantastic trip. That'll be going to first place. And then second through fifth is going to get tournament lammers from running aces. 1000 bucks for second, 500 for third, and 250 bucks each for fourth and fifth. Details at runaces.com. Check it out. The bounties for the main All for Africa tournament are also going to include seats for the Hawaiian Dream. So you can buy your way into the Hawaiian Dream or you can win your way in through playing All in for Africa the previous Saturday. Uh, all the charitable proceeds are going to go to the Against Malaria Foundation through a partnership we have with Reg Charities. They do great work. It's amazing impact. I've seen it firsthand. I've been to Rwanda four times and the impact is absolutely staggering. So thanks to all of you who are involved with that. All right, last week we moved into our new format, talking about playing as we get close to the bubble. And the feedback I got was pretty positive. People liked hearing from these experts on one specific subject. Uh, So please keep letting me know what you like, what you don't like. I can only change things if I know uh, about it. And thanks for all of you who are submitting ideas for future shows. That's fantastic as well. 
This week's question comes primarily from Dan Young, uh, but other people mentioned this as well, but he was asking about making decisions pre-flop when there's no action before you. So everyone folds to you pre-flop, uh, and how, how do we act? So the questions that I asked our experts were, first of all, what is your decision process and what are the key factors to determine if you're going to fold, limp, or raise, uh, including elements like hand strength type, uh, position, effective stack size, player types, the stage of the tournament, all of those things. And then secondly, if you choose to raise, do you have a standard bet size? And what is that and how or why does that change? Those sorts of things. So obviously this is a huge question for one small podcast, but I think it's good for us less experienced players to understand the frameworks used by the more experienced players as we look to improve our game. So after you hear from those guys, I'm going to add my thoughts. So if you're done, if you don't really want to hear my thoughts, you can shut off the podcast when they're done. But you're going to hear from Mike Schneider, Chris Fox Wallace, and Jonathan Little. And then I'll add sort of my thoughts as uh, somebody who is a recreational player trying to play more and more and gain that experience. So we're going to do a quick commercial here for Running Aces, and then we will get right into the discussion. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack has the best poker room in Minnesota. Featuring 24-7 promos on all cash poker games, including earning $2 per hour in comps, plus the most player-friendly tourney structures. Visit runaces.com for daily promotions and the tournament calendar. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack, the official sponsor of Rec Poker. He's won a million dollars! Hi, this is Mike Schneider of Poker is Fun Tour. URLPIFTPoker.com. This is an interesting question with a lot of variables to consider. I mean, I'll begin by saying that I generally never open limp. So, in general, if there are no players that have entered the pot before or when the, when the, when the action's on me, I am generally going to be raising or folding. Not really looking to limp and let the blind see a flop for for free or not really looking to have somebody isolate raise against me i i like throwing in an open raise which i guess i mean a lot of the, a lot of the factors i mean uh, some of them are made a game some of them are purely hand strength so for example if i've been a pretty active player getting played back at I I'm probably not gonna look at eight seven suited in an early position spot and feel like this is the time to make an open raise with. I'm probably just going to fold that hand. Whereas conversely, if I I've been extremely card dead and haven't really played more than like one or two hands in the last hour or so, I'm definitely gonna open raise that hand. And uh, one of the one of the things that I have is a over, overriding factor in my tournament play in general, be it pre-flop or post-flop, is I I look at chips lost as being a, a bigger negative than an equal number of chips gained. So for that reason, I'm generally simply open raising for the minimum or something quite close to that amount. So that I, like like the especially if we're open raising on the button or late position i'm pretty much always min open raising if we're early position i might be tempted to make it more like so say if it's 100 200 i might make it 450 or 500 or or even 600 if i have a ton of chips just the reason being why i might open raise for a larger amount in early position than later position is i i want to uh apply the pressure of 
making main players behind me have to make a larger three bet, whereas like few open raise for the minimum from early position, there the three bet amount is a lot less. Like 100, 200, I make it 400. Somebody can make it like 800 to 1,000. Where if I make it 600, obviously it's going to take way more than that. So, in a game theory sense, they're they're going to have to have a little bit tighter of an open raising range or open or three betting range against my open raising range, just due to the fact that they have to risk more chips and then i mean other other factors that often come into play are especially like who are the players that act behind me there if there's a couple of guys that love to cold call and are cold call or like seeing like 50 percent of the flops or more often cold calling that'll uh really make me want to tighten up especially on those kind of offsuit broadway hands so a hand like queen jack offsuit if you're going to get two cold callers behind you, queen-jack offsuited is really hard to play well out of position, so those kind of hands are going to go straight to the muck for me. Whereas a hand like 10-9 suited, a lot, a lot more likely to be willing to play that hand three, four, five ways out of position because that, that hand can uh, hit the flop really hard in a lot of ways where with a lot of players in the pot too, then you're more likely to get paid off by a second best hand the time that hand makes makes a straight or a flush or something along those lines. And then uh, another thing I guess I just throw in, uh, especially when uh, somebody raises from wherever and if we're in the small blind, for example, and it folds around to us, this is one spot where like I, I know I just talked about the whole I generally try to play small ball and conserve chips and I'm playing that way. But when somebody open raises and we're in the small blind, I or any out of position spot such as that, I generally like making a really large three bet. So say again we're at a we're at like a hundred, two hundred, somebody open raises to five hundred. Whereas if we were in position against them, I might three bet with whatever I have to, to like maybe a thousand or twelve hundred or nine hundred or anywhere in that range. I now when we're in the small blind and somebody makes it five hundred at one hundred, two hundred, I'm probably gonna go anywhere from like the fifteen hundred to seventeen hundred range when we're in the small blind. And just the the reason being is uh, being out of position, you're you're looking for more folds. And just quite simply, like, you don't really want to get played back at. So by, because, like, if you make a small re-raise, they can for sure call, like, with almost every hand they got. Or it's way easier for them to come over the top and four-bet you, which most of the time, unless you have aces or kings or something like that, you don't really want to get four-bet. You'd rather be the one that put in the last action as you head into the flop. Which then, uh... To uh, I guess we're talking a little post flop here. Like let's just say you did make uh make it seventeen fifty, and the guy calls you there. Now so now there's like thirty seven hundred in the in the pot, including the two hundred in the big blind. Now now let's say the flop comes, whatever it comes, you don't have to bet a huge amount on the flop. You can uh, oftentimes bet less than what you put in pre-flop on the flop and you're going to get whatever information you need people do fold to that bet a lot more than you think or if they i mean call or raise or whatever you found out a lot cheaper where everybody's at in the hand so it's just one of those things that just because you bet more on one street you don't have to keep firing huge amounts post-flop 
But yeah, I guess I know I didn't really talk about specific hands, but I I generally like to open raise with a lot of those pocket pairs or suited connectors and especially suited aces as well. And even, you know, like suited kings that aren't, I mean, from late position, king three suited's great. From early position, it's kind of garbage, but just kind of throwing that out there and hands like queen jack offsuit like i'm those are the kind of hands more from late position if there's been like two limps to me i'm not gonna try to throw in a big raise and either take down the pot or get it heads up i'm i'm content to limp there and see what happens although if the the limpers uh, if you've seen them limp and then fold pre-flop you i wouldn't fault anybody for for if it was like 100, 200 with two limpers, I wouldn't fault you for throwing 1,100 out there and hoping that everybody folds or you end up heads up with you having position. But yeah, I guess if uh, you got any further questions, feel free to uh, send me a tweet at schneidspoker, S-C-H-N-E-I-D-S, poker. Or uh, or uh, feel free to reach out to Steve and uh, he can uh, email me a question you have. I'm happy to answer or give clarification. I just wanted to uh, throw in that as I am the founder of the Poker is Fun Tour, I'm proud to state that uh, we raised uh, $2,472.30 for Second Harvest Heartland at our uh, most recent Winter Shown events at Canterbury Park in September, which uh, roughly $7 worth of food and groceries got distributed for, or can get distributed for every dollar that Second Harvest Heartland receives. So when we look at it that way, meant that uh, we did over $17,000 worth of good that weekend. Which, uh, additionally, Second Harvest can provide three meals for every dollar it receives. So, so through PIFT, we were officially on the hook for providing 7,416 meals to people who are in need. Which, yeah, I just... Uh, one, of, one of the things of PIFT, or the Poker is Fun Tour, is that every, every buy-in has a percent of the prize pool withheld for charity. And that's one of the things I'm really proud of about that. And along with that, we also accept charity uh, pledge sponsors. So if you happen to own a small business or know any friends that do that might want to make some any kind of a matching pledge at future tournaments that we do, we'd love to hear from you, whether it, they be pledging a straight up $50, $100, $500, or want to pledge they're going to match X percent up to whatever amount. Any pledge is a great pledge. And with that... Uh, Thank you for uh, listening to me to me speak about this question. Fox here from Next Level Poker. I think I have some interesting insight into this question and kind of a unique perspective. I've analyzed thousands of sets, ranges, and opening hands from my students and other players online when I've worked with training sites. And we get things like 200,000 hand sample at 1-2 no limit on PokerStars, where I can look at a big enough sample size to tell exactly which hands they're playing under the gun and which hands they're playing in late position and how often they're playing them in various ways. I also was part of a group that uh, six players put together 2 million hands. Back in those days, we had to have an access database programmer work with us and give us a chance to analyze those 6 million hands and learn things about them, but... I think we were the first people who had that kind of sample size, and we learned things like ace-queen offsuit wasn't profitable under the gun for any of us online in the 1-2 no-limit games. 
And that was surprising. I don't think anyone expected that to happen. And all six of us were playing poker for a living, and none of us were making ace-queen offsuit profitable. So in analyzing all those things, the biggest thing I've learned is that you're not positional enough. All of us, we're all not positional enough. None of us are tight enough in early position, and none of us are loose enough on the button. When we went through groups of hands in that 2 million hand sample, we learned that we should really be playing 3% of our hands maybe under the gun and about 30% of our hands on the button. And that if it's folded around to you on the button, you can go even up much higher than that, depending on who the blinds are. I've had hundreds of students over the years, and for a while there I was doing 20, 15 or 20 lessons a week with online poker players who had large hand samples, and I can tell you that I've never one time had a student that was positional enough when we started. Every student I've had was either too loose in early position or too tight on the button. Almost all of them were too loose in early position. So the uh, open range that we came up with for, the way to understand the open range that we came up with for my uh, starting hands chart in my book was a very simple formula. That is, you just remember ace-king offsuit, ace-queen suited, and a pair of eights. You remember those three hands, right? You got the offsuit hands, the suited hands, and the pairs. Ace-queen, ace suited, ace-king offsuit, and a pair of eights. If your hand isn't one of those or better than one of those, you throw it away under the gun in a cash game. In tournaments, things can change because of stack sizes, but you can just throw it away in a cash game. And then you drop each of those one for each of the first two positions, first three positions, so the two positions after that. And you can then come up with reasonable ranges. So one off the gun, you're going to be ace-jack suited, ace-queen offsuit, and a pair of sevens. That works for the first three spots in a cash game as an approximate range that you should be playing under the gun. And it is much tighter than you're probably playing. If you're looking down at ace-jack offsuit under the gun and thinking, how can I fold ace-jack? You're definitely not positional enough. Throw it away. Ace-jack offsuit under the gun in a cash game? Unless your opponents are just absolutely terrible and there are three people at the game who are drunk and trying to fire off money. And even then you might not make ace-jack offsuit profitable. You might be you might be better off with a pair of sevens. But uh, when you're in early position, you got to be really tight. And when you're in late position, that's when you get to play some hands. My start, starting hands chart in my book is so blurry that you really can't read it. And that's intentional in late position. It gets very blurry because it really depends on who's in the pot already, who's in the blinds, how many chips you have, what your table images, all these things to think about. So while those early position hands are not nearly as blurry, the late position hands really change a lot. And you could play anywhere from 25 to 75% of your hands on the button if it's folded around to you. It really depends on who the blinds are and what their stack sizes are. So when you're thinking about when to play hands and what hands to play when it's folded around to you, consider the number and quality of players yet to act. Look out for re-steal or open chip stacks if you're in a tournament. That's a, a thing maybe you haven't heard of. If you're a recreational player, some of you have not heard of a re-steal. Between 10 and 20 big blinds in a tournament is known as a re-steal stack. And if somebody raises from late position, you ship all in on them from the blinds or from the button, and they will often fold. And if they don't fold, there's enough money in the pot with the extra money they put in with the call that it ends up being profitable a lot of times. And so you have to remember, if there's a re-steal stack after you in a tournament, you don't want to be opening nearly as light. You want to be opening with hands you can call it off. So you know, open with ace-10 and call it off when somebody ships 14 big blinds. But don't open 6-4 or clubs if you know that there are two stacks with 14 big blinds behind you, and they're both players who are likely to reship. 
because you don't want to be stuck having to decide if you're going to call it off with six higher fold, usually fold in that spot, but you're not going to like it and you're going to lose your raise most of the time. Think about aggressive players who might three bet you, people who flat in position and are troublesome after the flop, and then think about your own stack and how people are going to react to it. Do you want to build chips or preserve chips in this spot if you're in a tournament? Are there soft players with big stacks behind you in a cash game? That can mean that you open more hands than you would usually, especially hands that can flop something. In a tournament, it's almost always wrong to go more than 2.5x, the big blind after the first few levels, just because the stack sizes get smaller. And correct open raise sizing is a function of the stacks and the blinds. We want to open raise according to how big the stacks are and how big the blinds are. It's a function of those things. In a cash game, that means that the stacks are often more than 100 big blinds deep, and so an open to 4, 5, 6x can be correct in the game. In a tournament, other than the first level or two, that is never true. If you're in level 5, everybody doesn't have 100 big blinds, and so you want to raise smaller than that. I usually, by level 3, have dropped to 2.5 big blinds as my raise size, Later in the tournament, you can drop to 2.2 or 2.1, whatever you're comfortable with. You'll see what other players at the table are doing and how people are reacting to it. But going more than two and a half times the big blind after about level four or five is almost always a mistake. So those are my thoughts on bet sizing and which hands to open in late position. Really a subject I could talk about all day, but I only have so much time on the podcast. We're going to be announcing an event our first event for Next Level Poker, our first tournament series. And we're looking forward to broadcasting the All In for Africa event on October 28th. See you all there and talk to you all next week. Are you little? Because your name says you're little. I say, no, I'm not little. Hello, this is Jonathan Little for PokerCoaching.com. When everyone folds around to me and I'm trying to decide which hands to raise and for what size... I typically stick with fairly rigid ranges, unless I know a lot about my opponents. But those ranges are based on a few things. And actually, I have all of these ranges clearly listed out in a lot of charts in my most recent book, Mastering Small Stakes No Limit Hold'em. So check that out. But the most important thing is what position are you in? And that's because from early position when you raise, you have to worry about everyone else at the table picking up a hand. Whereas whenever you raise from, say, the button, you only have to worry about the small blind and the big blind picking up a hand, which is way less likely than if you have to worry about eight people at the table, right? So your position is very important. Also, you need to think about your stack size. As your stack size decreases or increases, um, specific hands go up or down in value. For example, 9-8 suited is a pretty sweet hand when you're playing 250 big blinds deep because it's going to make straights and flushes. And, you know, ace suited is a particularly good hand whenever you're playing very deep because that can make the nut flush and it can run, it, it can stack someone who makes a worse flush. But as you get shallower, Hands like ace-jack offsuit become way more valuable because top pair, top kicker is usually good for only 20 big blinds or so. So the stack depth will change the composition of your range, and that is also very relevant. And again, I list all of this in Mastering Small Stakes No Limit Hold'em where I outline which hands I'm raising from all positions based on stack size. You also, if you're going to make adjustments, you need to think about who is yet to act, right? So for example, say they fold to you on the button and you know that you have two maniacs to your left who are going to re-raise you every single time you open. Well, you probably need to start off with pretty good hands, right? So you can 
play maybe 25 or 30% of hands, which is very tight from the button. But if the players in the blinds are very, very tight and they're only going to put money in with like aces, kings, queens, jacks, and ace, king, well, then you can open any two cards because they're almost never going to play back at you. And when they do play back at you, you have a very clear idea of how to respond. So that's how you typically go about making adjustments. And you can make more adjustments from late position than you can from early position. And that's because from early position, you're really just running your hand against a bunch of random hands. Whereas um, from the later positions, you can adjust your strategy based on your opponent's tendencies. I typically don't limp at all. Um, it was mentioned, like, should should we determine if we should limp? Well, when they fold to you, quite often there's just a lot of value in picking up the blinds and making people fold. Because when you limp, you let the blinds realize their equity. Like, even if you have, like, ace-king and the blinds have 9-4 offsuit, well, the 9-4 offsuit's going to outdraw you some portion of the time. And, like, why let the 9-4 offsuit outdraw you when you can just pick up the pot immediately? And it may not seem like a great success to steal the blinds, but it is relevant. Now, for my raise size, as you get deeper stacked, you want to raise larger in general. And that's because you want to be able to play a large pot by the river if you feel inclined. And if you start off with a small pot going to the flop or going to the turn or going to the river, you're not going to be able to play a large pot. So um, that said, typically the biggest raise size I ever make is about three and a half big blinds. And the smallest raise size I make is to a min raise for two big blinds. Um, that said, I'm usually raising between two and a half and three big blinds almost always. I'm typically raising larger against calling stations who are going to call my raise with all sorts of garbage. And I'm raising for the minimum against players who are going to be way too tight. And one problem as you get shallower with min raising, a lot of people hopped on the min raising bandwagon because a lot of the best players were exploiting people by min raising. Um, one problem with min raising is that say you're playing a 20 big blind stack and you min raise from any position. The big blind can actually call with a very wide range profitably for 20 big blinds and then just check shove anytime they connect with the board at all. And that's going to be a very profitable play for them. And most people realize that. So in the past, people were folding to min raises way too often, but they've realized that you should not fold to min raises too often. Therefore, min raising may not be quite the best strategy anymore now that a lot of players figured that out. But um, whenever you're choosing your strategy, you always want to ask, what am I trying to accomplish here? And... I think a lot of people don't necessarily think about that. They just look at their hand. Okay, 9-8 offsuit. That hand can flop okay. I'm going to play it. And that's the end of the thought process. But you want to be thinking about your position, your stack size, the effective stack size, you know, how much each player has, and also how your opponents are going to reply to your raises. Right? Like, say you expect to get re-raised a lot because, again, let's say we're on the button and the players and the blinds are very crazy. Well, you either need to be willing to four-bet, perhaps all-in, or you need to just start with a lot of hands that can withstand pressure. So that's going to be a lot of big card hands, right? And pairs. So always ask, how, how is this hand going to play out? And what can I do? What, how can I structure my range to better take advantage of those situations? But again, I list out all of my range charts that I start with before the flop in Mastering Small Stakes No Limit Hold'em. And really, pre-flop is one of the more simpler spots in No Limit Hold'em because there are only so many situations that can come up. Whereas post-flop, that's where things get really tricky. So yeah, poker's fun. Check it out. <laughs> um, also, check out my poker training site, pokercoaching.com, where I have a lot of interactive quizzes that will really nail down how I'm adjusting with my raise size and my ranges based on the opponents yet to act and the situations that we're currently presented. So check that out. You can get a free trial at pokercoaching.com. Thank you very much. This has been Jonathan Little.
Well, thank you to Mike Schneider and Chris Fox Wallace and Jonathan Little for their great insight. I know they all want to go deeper, and I know you all want them to go deeper too, but uh, we're limited by time. So we'll dig into some of those little by little. Let us know what some of the some of the things are that you want to dig into a little bit deeper. Uh, let's take a quick commercial break here from Running Aces, who is our official sponsor, and then I'll come back with my thoughts and close us off. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack has the best poker room in Minnesota. Featuring 24-7 promos on all cash poker games, including earning $2 per hour in comps, plus the most player-friendly tourney structures. Visit runaces.com for daily promotions and the tournament calendar. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack, the official sponsor of Rec Poker. So I recited Pi to 22,514 decimal places. It took me five hours and nine minutes. Well, over the past few months, deciding which hands to play and how to play them has been actually a pretty key area of focus for me. And frankly, I I give this area and this focus a lot of credit for my results. Uh, I'm not trying to brag, but over the last couple of months, my ROI is over 130%. I've netted over 6,500 bucks in profit, and the biggest tournament I played was $300. So it wasn't like one big mega cash. I didn't even cash in the $300 buy-in. Um, so the reason I say that is it's been a nice run. There's been positive variance, but I believe that my pre-flop decisions have both increased my expected value and reduced the variance in my results. And both of those have had this positive impact on my ROI. I also started wearing a fitted hat that I bought at the World Series of Poker, which is doing a few things. Uh, first of all, I'm paying homage to the great Dave Gagne, but also this wearing this fitted hat actually helps me in some sort of weird way uh, separate my poker world from the rest of my life. Uh, I've got a busy job. I run a nonprofit. I've got family, friends. I'm in leadership in different things. So I've got a lot of stuff going on, podcasting. Um, so this actually helps put me in my poker zone. So in addition to the poker hat, I would say preflop decisions have been the biggest impact on my recent results. Specifically, what I've been working on are a few things. If it is limped around to me, what am I going to play? And I've really been using Fox's pre-flop hand approach as a starting point. The research that he has that he talked about that's in his book also is geared in cash. And I think it needs to be adjusted for the number and type of players at your table, as well as the chip stacks and the tournament structure. But as a default, it has served me extremely well. As he mentioned, under the gun, which is first to act after the blinds, I should have a default range somewhere in the neighborhood of pocket nines and better, ace-king and ace-queen suited or better, and that's it. And I found myself recently just throwing away ace-jack, ace-ten, pocket sevens, pocket fours, under the gun. It's been a little bit painful at first, but more times than not, I'm happy that I did. Of course, once in a while, you're going to throw the winner away, but in general, I think I would have lost a lot of chips playing those hands. So let's assume that you raise with one of those hands. Say you raise with ace-ten or pocket sixes. If you have nine players behind you left to act, there's a 40% chance that someone of those nine people will wake up with a top 5% hand and a 60% chance that at least one person will be in the top 10% or better. And so what this means is that there's a very good chance that you'll be playing this pot out of position and a good chance that you'll be doing so facing a three bet and a good chance you'll be doing so facing a better hand. And so Fox's method goes on then to drop one from each category as you're closer to the button. And what I like about this is it gives me a default range to play before I look at my cards, which makes my decisions easier. So I might do something like this. 
let's say I'm under the gun plus two, so basically in a, in a middle position situation, and as the dealer is dealing, I will think to myself, okay, my default range here is pocket sevens or better, ace jack or ace ten suited or better. And, but the table's playing pretty tight, especially those who are on the button and those who are in the blind. So I'm going to expand this a little bit. Maybe I'm going to say I'll play pocket fives or better. I'll play ace ten and I'll play ace eight suited or better. And maybe I'll throw king queen in there as well. So doing something like this just helps me logically think through what I want to do before I pick up something like queen nine and I start firing just out of instinct. And I also ascribe to Jonathan Little's approach that I rarely limp when I'm the first one to voluntarily put chips in the middle. So if it folds to me, if I'm going to play, if my hand is good enough to call, if my hand is good enough to limp, my hand is good enough to raise. And that's generally how I play this. Now, there are a few rare occasions where I will be the first one to act and I will limp. One of those is if the table is just having a limp fetch where everybody's seeing every pot and I have something like suited connectors or a small pair, uh, I'm willing to call a raise, but I really just want as many people in this pot as possible because if I hit, I want to get paid off. I'm not really worried about building a pot early because if I hit, I'm going to get paid and probably get somebody's stack in some of these tournaments that are played like that. Secondly, I will limp if I have a big hand and I am just almost positive that someone behind me is going to raise. Um, and, and especially if I limp and a few others limp and I just know people are going to raise. However, if I think that they're going to re-raise me even if I raise, then I'm actually better off raising and letting them re-raise me to really get a, a better pot there. And the third spot that I will limp is if we're later in a tournament and there are several short stacks just itching to get their chips in the middle and I have a hand that's willing to call them off. Uh, I might limp there, uh, but I still generally, I mean, I, I limp maybe one time a tournament on average, maybe twice in certain tournaments, but it's it's pretty rare. Uh, if I'm going to get in, I'd rather get in with a raise. Uh, part of that is I want my whole range to be reflected in my raising hands, so when I raise with a big hand, uh, people don't, they can't, It's not, I'm not easy to play against that way. One of the main considerations with opening hand ranges and position is, in addition to the probability of someone else picking up a hand is that it is way harder to extract chips out of position when you have a big hand. So if it's folded around to you, the earlier you are in position, the worse the chance is that you have the best hand and the harder it is to extract value. Therefore, tighter opening hand ranges are warranted. So those are my thoughts. Uh, as always, I'm open to your feedback on the content as well as the structure. You can find us uh, Rec Poker on Facebook, Twitter, or email me directly, stevefredland at gmail.com. Next week, we're going to continue our pre-flop discussion, and we're specifically going to be looking at how do we react when there's a pre-flop raise in front of our turn to act pre-flop. So we'll take a look at that. All right, that's it. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, y'all.